Well, this morning we're back in 1 Corinthians 15, so if you would like to go ahead and turn there. You know, the church has, and always has had, people who were just lukewarm. You know, those are the people who want to cover their bases, but they don't want to get carried away with this religion thing. That kind of religion is, is not only worthless, but it's actually harmful to the practitioner. Now, why do I say that? Well, the first reason is that it's a, it's a colossal waste of time. You know, I used to be a big fan of the NFL before they got into politics, and I used to watch a lot of games, and those games would start at noon, and I never caught the first part of the game, usually didn't catch the first half of the game, because I was at church. And if you've got a, a lukewarm religion where you're kind of trying to cover your bases, man, go watch the football game. <laughs> that way you're not wasting your time. And you know what? It, it's not only a waste of time, but actually it brings further judgment on you. I mean, you know, when you're witnessing, sometimes somebody will come and say, well, what about the innocent heathen in Africa that has never heard the gospel? Well, there aren't any innocent heathens in Africa or any other continent, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But consider that guy who has never heard the gospel. When he stands before God, he will be guilty of his sin. But consider somebody that comes and sits under the preaching of the gospel every single week, still does not accept the, the gift of the sacrifice of Christ. And, and goes to hell because, well, you know, I, I could say a prayer, but this whole taking up your cross and following him thing, I'm not about to do that. Now, which one of those two is going to receive a harsher judgment? It's going to be that one who sits week after week under the sound of the gospel. They've had so much light given to them that they will face a much harsher penalty than the one who had the revelation of God through creation and through his conscience, but never heard the name of Christ. Now, that person who's never heard of Christ will go to hell, but he won't go to hell because he didn't hear of Christ. He'll go to hell because of sin and rebellion, just like every other human that has ever uh, been condemned to there. So it brings you a harsher judgment, and it wastes your time if you, if you just play at church. Now you may think, well, but what if somebody is really saved, but they're just lukewarm? You know, they, they were saved, but they've gotten kind of colder and they've drifted and they have a get out of hell free card and they can live any, you know, like any worldly person and enjoy all the pleasures of sin, right? I mean, that's, that might sound good to some people. They're like, hey, I'll go to church, I'll get the fire insurance thing, I'll say the prayer, I'll walk the aisle. But then I can go ahead and enjoy my sin and live the way I want to live. That, that's just the plan of a bunch of churchgoers. I've got to tell you, I don't think that it works that way. If someone is truly born again, they will not want to live a lifestyle of sin and rebellion. Dr. Rogers used to say that God changes your wanter when you get saved. You want different things. So if you're thinking, well, I can... I can have Christ, I can have a little bit of Christ enough to save me, 
but I can also have my sin, well, that is a really good indication that, that you're not born again. Remember last week we read several verses about what Jesus said about salvation. And I'll remind you of, of just a couple of them and see if I can illustrate my point here. Luke 14, 26 and 27 says, and this is Jesus speaking, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now there's some context there, there's some understanding there. We're supposed to love our family, respect our family. But he's saying if you prefer anything over me, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So based on those verses, does it seem to you that there can be genuine Christians who want the fire insurance from hell but don't actually want Jesus as their Lord and their master? It does not look to me like that's an option for us. Yet it is what many, many churchgoers want and think that they do have. If you are lost, you cannot have your cake and eat it too. Because what you want is to be able to sin without the consequences of sin. That's not how it works. On the other hand, if you're a believer, you can have your cake and eat it too. Because what you want is to become less and less sinful, less and less rebellious to grow in your faith, to grow in your walk, to grow in your obedience and be forgiven of your sins. And you can have both of those things if you are a believer. So if you're a half-hearted, lukewarm kind of church member, I want to persuade you that that is thoroughly irrational. Paul is an excellent uh, arguer. Law schools, Harvard as a matter of fact, used to require their first year law students to read and study the book of Romans. Not for their spiritual edification, but for them to understand how to masterfully build a logical argument. Alright? Paul is good at that. Now we are to have passion, we are to have fervor, but we're also to use our brains and to reason things out. So I want to convince you today that if you're a believer, you should orient your entire life around the church and her mission. Now, does that sound crazy to you? I realize it may. You may be thinking, that's okay for you because you're a pastor, you get paid to do this, you're called into vocational ministry. I understand why you think you should orient your life around the church and the mission of the church. But I live in the real world, and I've got a job, and I've got a family, and so I've got things to do. I understand that there are things that compete for your attention. But as a Christian, you really need to prioritize the way your master tells you to, regardless of your vocation. You know, God calls pastors, but God calls electricians, and physicians, and teachers, and waitresses, and Walmart greeters and everything else that is a morally acceptable means of earning an income. He calls people to their profession. I don't think that I'm any more called to be a pastor than Jimmy is to be a business owner. We have different circles of influence there. He sees people regularly I don't see. 
I get opportunities to witness to people who come in here and ask for money and stuff like that. We see different people, but we're both called to ministry, although different vocations. Now, I get paid to study my Bible, prepare sermons, provide biblically-based counseling, and generally provide direction for the church. And I agree that that's a blessing. That's why I want to do it. I love it. <laughs> uh, I used to answer a question on my, on my bank when I'd sign in, and it'd say, what is your dream job? And for years and years, that answer has been pastor. That is my dream job. So it is a blessing, but that doesn't mean that we don't prioritize God and his bride, the church, even if our vocation is something else. So let's look at why we should prioritize our lives this way if we are believers. The first point is, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we have a futile faith. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12, says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And this is Paul's infallibly logical argument. Some of these Corinthians were were thinking that there's not actually a physical resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying, that doesn't make any sense. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most Pitied. Somehow some of these goofy Corinthians had gotten it into their heads that there was no resurrection of the body. And Paul is writing to correct them and explain to them how nonsensical their thinking is. I'm pretty sure we don't have to worry about any, any of that weird heresy in here this morning, okay? I don't think any of us are saying, you know, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't buy this bodily resurrection thing. So we are going to get to the point of what verse 14 talks about. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I hope you see how true this is. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then this is much ado about nothing. As a matter of fact, if Jesus was not raised, then we don't have a clue what's going on. There is no way of redemption. You know, you may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. I mean, that's got to be our attitude if Christ was not raised from the dead. You know, there's a book out that's been out for years called Your Best Life Now. And if Christ was not raised from the dead, then this is your best life now. So go have fun. But wait, it gets even worse than that. Verse 15 says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Man, if Christ is not raised, then we're not just wasting our time and effort, but we're making God mad. You know, the competing worldview of Christianity today is naturalistic evolution. 
And, you know, Americans think that way. But probably these strict uh, Jews in Paul's day were thinking that, well, Judaism is the alternative. Or these pagans in Corinth were thinking that these worshiping these pagan deities was the correct alternative if Christ weren't raised. But, you know, our competing thought is that naturalistic evolution that is taught in schools so fervently and thoroughly. I tell you what, I would reject Darwinian evolution for philosophical and scientific reasons alone, even if I did not have religious reasons. So that's not a very satisfying alternative. So if there is a God, and I believe there is ample reason to believe there is, because no other explanation for existence is satisfying, then if Jesus was not raised, we're certainly representing God poorly. We're telling myths that he did not do, right? So if we're wasting our time and making God mad, that's bad news. If that were not enough bad news, we have another verse, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Dr. R.C. Sproul said that when he is witnessing to people, sometimes those people will bring up objection after objection after objection. And and Dr. Sproul was one of the most articulate um, apologists in, in centuries for the Christian church. He was a brilliant man. So he could answer those objections. But when it came down to the bottom line, R.C. would ask him, okay, what are you going to do with your guilt The only solution for real guilt is real forgiveness. And if Christ was not raised, we don't have any way of forgiveness. Those who have died have no hope. Verse 18 says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. I freely admit and acknowledge that if Jesus was not raised, then I do deserve your pity. Because he is the only hope that I have. I have put all my eggs in this one basket. And if he's not raised from the dead, oh, you should pity me. But if Christ has been raised from the dead, we must have a fervent faith. Why? Well, because everything that I said would be true if he were not raised. Is, the opposite is actually how it is. Instead of being clueless, we are the ones who have been reconciled to God. You know, we know how this takes place. And by faith in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf, we can have forgiveness. If someone had the cure for cancer and did not share it, but kept it for themselves and used it on themselves... You'd you'd think the guy was a monster, right? So we who have the answer to real guilt, we who have the solution for a holy God who demands justice and righteousness and a people who have failed miserably in living out justice and righteousness, we have the solution to that. We know that there can be forgiveness through Christ. And we must fervently, frequently, joyfully share that news. Instead of there being no way of redemption, there is a way of redemption. We know that way, and it is freely offered to all people. 
I mean, what if it was offered, but it was unattainable? You know, what if salvation were offered if you could only live perfectly for a year? That wouldn't be good news, would it? (laughs) It'd be out of our grasp. We wouldn't be able to get it. But this salvation that God provides is within the reach of every single person. We have to just place our faith in God. We have to believe that what He says is true. Now that does not mean that we'll never have doubts. But it is the conscious choice to believe what God says. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then your best life is not now if you're His. Romans 8, 18 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Guys, I believe that people who have suffered, and we have people in our church who we know and love that have suffered greatly, right? One of these days in heaven, you're going to walk up to that saint and say, do you remember when you spent these years in physical pain and suffering? I think they're going to go, what are you talking about? They're going to forget all about that. This is going to be undone. They're going to be joyful because of the glory to come. Revelation 2, 21-4 says, He, being God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You know, God made us so that we long for justice. One day we will see God perfectly execute justice. Then we will worship Him for it. We who have settled out of court, though, will receive mercy before that justice is dispensed. You can receive mercy from this holy and righteous judge today. Instead of making God mad by misrepresenting Him, we're able to joyfully participate in the work of redemption that He does. You know, He could save people without us. He could have angels come and share the gospel. He could write the gospel in the heavens. He could do anything He wants to do. And yet He has chosen to reconcile men and women to Himself through us. You guys know my favorite little part of scripture I guess if you can have a favorite is 2 Corinthians 5 toward the end where it talks about how God has reconciled us and then given us the ministry of reconciliation he allows us to be part of his huge eternal plan instead of the dead hopelessly dying in their sins we're able to look forward to following our savior in resurrection Now, all this is predicated on Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right? We said, if Jesus is not raised, we're fools and we're deserving of pity. If he is raised, then we have been given this light and given this opportunity to share this with the world and to partake in it ourselves. Thank God Christ has been raised. Verse 4 says, He was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Paul was writing this to one church. You know, he was not writing this little conspiracy theory that he hoped maybe somehow would be passed on down through the ages and 2,000 years from now somebody would read this hoax that he wrote, okay? He was writing a letter to a church at that time and he said Christ was raised and 500 people saw him. Most of them are alive, (laughs) okay? Why is he saying that? He's saying, look, don't take my word for it. There are hundreds of people who have been eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. You don't write that if you're making stuff up, right? <laughs> He's saying, we have, we have people all over the place that have seen the risen Christ. If you've not seen him, go ask one of those people. Because we have seen him. It would be really foolish to make a claim like that unless you could back it up. You know, instead, you would want to make it some secret knowledge that only a privileged few have access to. And you'd want the details to be vague and unverifiable if you were trying to trick people, right? If this were not true, Paul would not have written this. Paul knew it was true, though, because he had seen and heard the resurrected Christ. He had also talked with a lot of other eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now, we don't know when Jesus appeared to James, but I have a feeling that it was right around the time of James' conversion, you know? If your brother, who you thought was crazy and having delusions of grandeur, was killed for those delusions of grandeur, but then appeared back and started talking to you, I'm pretty sure you would believe that he was indeed who he said he was. Now, did these eyewitnesses stick to their story? I think that's the question. Because, you know, people are willing to die for a lie sometimes. We had people in 2001 on September 11th fly airplanes into buildings Because they believed lies. They believed that they were going to be rewarded. And that they were going to have eternal life because of the murder of thousands of people. So that was a lie. And yet they believed it and they were willing to die for it. But let me ask you, is anybody willing to die for something they know is not true? That again is irrational. So if these guys saw Christ, said they saw Christ, and then had to die for it, surely they would have recanted had it not been true. But let me tell you what they did instead. I want to read to you the accounts of the martyrdom of the apostles from Dr. John MacArthur's book, Twelve Ordinary Men. Pick up that book if you want to. It's a little profile of each one of the disciples. I'll paraphrase and quote here. All the records of the early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. Eusebius cites the testimony of Clement, who says that before Peter was crucified, he was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. As he watched her being led to death, Clement says, Peter called to her by name, saying, Remember the Lord. When it was Peter's turn to die, he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die as his Lord had died. And thus he was nailed to a cross head downward. That sounds to me like somebody who believed his testimony. Andrew was ultimately crucified in Achaia 
which is in southern Greece near Athens. One account says that he led the wife of a provincial Roman governor to Christ, and that infuriated her husband. He demanded that his wife recant her devotion to Jesus Christ, and she refused. So the governor had Andrew crucified. By the governor's orders, those who crucified him lashed him to his cross instead of nailing him in order to prolong his suffering. Tradition says it was a saltier or an X-shaped cross. By most accounts, he hung on the cross for two days, exhorting passerbys to turn to Christ for salvation. After a lifetime of ministry in the shadows of his more famous brother and in the service of his Lord, he met a similar fate as theirs, remaining faithful and still endeavoring to bring people to Christ as he hung on the cross dying. That sounds to me like somebody who believed what he was preaching. History records that James' testimony bore fruit right up until the moment of his execution. Eusebius, the early church historian, passes on an account of James' death that came from Clement of Alexandria. Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he himself was also a Christian. They were both, therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little, said, Peace be with thee, and kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. John died, by most accounts, around A.D. 98, during the reign of Emperor Trojan. Jerome says in his commentary on Galatians that the aged apostle John was so frail in his last days at Ephesus that he had to be carried into the church. Folks, if I'm alive when I can't walk around, I hope somebody will carry me into the church. Tradition tells us that Philip was greatly used in the spread of the early church and was among the first of the apostles to suffer martyrdom. By most accounts, he was put to death by stoning in Asia Minor. Eight years after the martyrdom of James, before his death, multitudes came to Christ under his preaching. There are differing traditions regarding Nathaniel. One tradition says he was tied up in a sack and thrown into the sea. Another tradition says that he was crucified, but by all accounts, he was martyred for preaching the gospel. The earliest traditions about Matthew indicate that he was burned at the stake. This is a man who walked away from a lucrative career, preached the gospel all his life, and for his trouble, was burned at the stake. Never did he recant. Never did he say, okay guys, we made it up. The strongest tradition says that Thomas was martyred for his faith by being run through with a spear. That may have been a fitting martyrdom for one whose faith came of age when he saw the spear mark in his master's side and for one who longed to be reunited with his Lord. Accounts of James' death differ. This is not the Lord's brother James, but the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve. Some Some say he was stoned. Others say he was beaten to death. Still others say he was crucified. There's no reliable record of what happened to Simon the Zealot, but all accounts say that he was killed for preaching the gospel. The traditional uh, apostolic symbol of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas, where in the Bible it says not Iscariot, is a club because tradition says he was clubbed to death for his faith. Why were they so zealous that they were willing to die for their faith? It's because they had seen 
the risen Christ. Now you haven't, and I haven't. But we have their testimonies, and their testimonies are verified as being true by their very lives. So folks, I know there are people who say, hey, I'd believe if I saw the resurrected Christ. The Bible says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are not called to an irrational faith. We are not called to leap off into the dark. We are called to examine the evidence, the really reliable evidence of men who are willing to go to brutal, horrible deaths because of their testimony and to believe them. So folks, when you share the gospel, you don't have to say, guys, just believe. You can give them reason to believe. You can give them evidence preserved in the Word of God. I mean, think about with me when Paul wrote, Jesus appeared to over 500 people at one time. Most of them are alive. Again, he was saying, look, go ask. Now, we can't do that. I wish we could. I would love to have have listened to Christ for years and walked around with him and then seen him resurrected. I'd like to go to talk to some eyewitness and have him tell me the story. But guys, we get the eyewitness account right here in the Word of God. So salvation is believing that what God says is true. And then sharing that faith with somebody else, guys. Sharing your faith is not not a requirement of salvation, but it is an outworking of salvation. If we know the truth, and again, we know a reliable truth, then we can show people the evidence for that truth. And we can help them see it. Now, I think there's more to it than that. I don't think any lost human is is ever going to come to faith by just hearing some facts. Because I believe it's a working of the Spirit of God. But God uses the gospel. He uses the testimony of these men to bring people to faith. What that gospel is, boiled down to its bare essentials, is this. We have a problem with God. And the reason is because God is holy and we are not. And God is just and He must punish sin. But Christ offers us His account of righteousness and takes away our sin which He paid for on the cross. And so if you have never made that great exchange, let me beg you to make it today. Following 2 Corinthians 5, those those few verses that I talk about often, is chapter 6, and it says, We implore you on Christ's behalf to be saved. So let me do that today. I want to implore you on Christ's behalf to be saved if you are not already. And if you are, let me implore you to go all in, to have a fervent faith. Because guys, what Paul is saying is either Christ wasn't raised and this is meaningless nonsense, or he was raised and there's nothing in the world more important than that fact. So being lukewarm is just an irrational position. Do away with it. 
go home and stay home and relax and enjoy your Sunday mornings, or come here with passion and zeal and fervor and obedience. Those two make sense. Being in the middle just doesn't make any sense. So I hope today you'll think about that. You'll think, you know, am I in or am I out? And if I'm in, I'm going all in. If you're here and you say, I want to join this church because I want to get all in. I don't want to come and just warm a pew sometimes. I want to get in. I want to be a member. I want to be accountable to you. I want you to be accountable to me. I want us to grow in our faith and our love for one another. I want to join this church. You come down. 